Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we re-examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review 28 Days Later. The second time. The second time. Because <laughs> you're not a podcast until you've lost an episode and have to re-record it. So we are officially a podcast now. <laughs> yeah, just for a little a little behind the pod, we recorded the, this the first time, and it was a lovely recording, and... I don't know what happened, but my audio file got corrupted. So about halfway through, you just hear me saying, and zombies, and zombies, and zombies, <laughs> for a solid, like, 30 minutes. Um, and I figured that wouldn't be a fun bit. So, <laughs> Although, if you still have that audio file, we should put that at the... Uh end of this uh, file yeah there you go just so <laughs> just so it tags out with you just going and zombies and zombies <laughs> it's a plan <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're talking about 28 days later what is what is this weird movie about so 28 days later is the story of jim a man who wakes up a month after the apocalypse Upon waking up naked and alone in the hospital, Jim wanders an empty London until discovering the monstrous, rage-infected humans that now haunt the city. Jim is saved by survivor Selina, and together with a small family, they journey away from the city towards the promise of salvation at a military camp, unaware of the different dangers waiting for them there. And right off the bat, like, like it, it's funny to me that... This is the first zombie movie we've reviewed for the show because I I I probably wouldn't have had it be this one, but it's funny that, you know, fate as it were decided it for us. I I think zombie movies are maybe the most cult genre there is. You know, there's there's whole documentaries about the subject and there's just if, less nowadays because walking dead has really helped zombies become mainstream but these used to be like just the the most b-movie campy cult kind of entertainment you could subject yourself through and yeah. 28 days later kind of restarted the genre back in 2002 yes and I want to disagree with you right off the bat that this is not a cult movie. Right. I mean, I I am all for the genre of zombies being cult, but I think this movie did too well to be considered cult. It did well critically. It did well financially. It's so well known. Um, I hear you. I don't really think this is cult per se. No, I think you're right. Um, like, I... I so I really do think like every zombie movie up to a certain point is cult. And mm -hmm. I mean, this, this passes the test of like, if you type in is 28 days later cult, <laughs> you you'll see other people like calling it a cult classic. But I think it's, I, I think it's very fair. Your disagreement. Um, yeah. And you know, we'll talk about why when we get to that yeah. at the end, but as far as the movie, whether it's cult or not, did you like it? Yeah, and I was actually really surprised. So we've talked before in our podcast about how I'm a weenie when it comes to scary things. This wasn't actually too super scary for me. It was jump scary, but there, for the most part, it was just more fascinating and this really interesting discussion of what does society do at the end of the world 
is what is morality towards the end of the movie it talks a lot about how how do we hold ourselves accountable for morality and it was this really fascinating discussion of what do you do at the end of the world like how do you stay good do you stay and fight what happens and i loved that conversation i was all here for that sure you know um this was directed by danny boyle who um if that name isn't familiar to some people, he directed Slumdog Millionaire, Train Spotting, um, and he's kind of having a little bit of a, of a heyday right now. The last thing he directed was Yesterday, the Beatles movie, um, and he's he's a very talented, very capable director, and he managed to do a lot of really cool stuff with this. So to start it off, like my favorite thing is the fact that the the zombie virus outbreak, as it were, gets started because of a bunch of PETA eco-warrior dumbasses. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that so much. Like, this is why you don't break into a biological testing site. Whether, whether, right. whether your intentions are good or not, and especially once the scientist says, oh my god, no, please, you can't, you can't let that out. Don't break that. Like... <laughs> Right, it's just these well-intentioned pedo warriors who are like, save the animals! And it's like, oh no, you don't know what you're doing, do you? So so next time like you break into a lab, just know that you might be causing the downfall of society. I don't know, I've never been that much of an activist, but like, I think I would draw the line at protesting and not breaking into places with biohazard symbols. <laughs> Yeah, I I think it's just interesting. This movie deals a lot with morality and gray. It's not a very black and white movie. There's a lot of moral gray and a lot of that comes out in the character of Selena. Sure. She she has this whole thing about like how do you survive and what is family and what is what is moving forward. And a lot of this black or white gray conversation comes in with her right and and i mean she's um she's played by naomi harris and she's a brilliant character and she has a brilliant arc you know she goes from being this ultra pragmatic cold warrior woman who you know kills her friend the moment it even seems like he has been infected and manages to rekindle um, some of that more tender humanity throughout the end of the movie. Yeah, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So the first, the first third of the movie is the character of Jim walking through a completely shut down London. Right, and this is I I I love the idea of this disaster. Yes, um, and it's it, I, I think like this is why. This is part of why it was such a hit. Like to think about 2002 modern day as as much as anything can be London being completely shut down and just the the ghost town city. It's it's so eerie and it's so powerful. Um and it's actually like really crazy that they were able to even pull it off. You know, the way the filmmakers were able to do this was using a lot of prosumer handheld cameras. You know, this was the turn of the millennium and Mm -hmm. video camera technology had gotten to the point where they could do that. So the first thing was, you know, they, they didn't have to have a full on film crew. They didn't have to have 
thousands and thousands of dollars that takes time to set up. So they were able to block off, you know, the famous um, M8 bridge or whatever it's called in London, that famous bridge where you see Big Ben. They were able to block that off and they were able to close off parts of the city in the early morning. And wow. it's it's impressive. I really think it yeah. is. Well, and I think that's why the absence of sound, anytime there is sound, I actually, per, I think your request, I kept track of the times I jumped <laughs> right. in the movie. Um, and the first one is when Jim is walking through London and a car alarm goes off because there's been no sound here to four. That intense suddenness of that sound was horrifying. Absolutely. I love it. Um, <laughs> and, and Jim is great. Like Jim is Killian Murphy, Cillian Murphy. Yeah. I never remember how Kill- Killian Killian. Thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, Killian Murphy, who is, you know, a brilliant actor. And this was not the first thing he did, but I think this was one of his first major leading roles. And, you know, we were just talking about Selena doing a great job. Jim and Killian does a great job and has, you know, his own arc that he goes through. I think it's, I I think if he doesn't sell the barren, crazy London, then the movie is poorer for it. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think because we, the audience, wake up to the same disaster that Jim does we kind of watch the transition through his eyes right? and we kind of wake up and see, Oh, this is what's happening. And we figure it out with him. Right. And, and exactly right. Like we don't know, just like he doesn't know what, how London, how England, how Britain fell. Right. And, you know, we just, we just wake up to a shaved head and naked Killian Murphy, which I don't know why he was naked. <laughs> not um not mad about it. I don't it. know. <laughs> but it's also it's not uh impressive. It's not it's pointy. realistic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and so it's it's there's no reason for him to be naked. It's not for like ooh, shock factor. It's just He's naked. Right. Which like, makes no sense. Why would he be naked in the hotel room? What was the la- or in the hospital room? What was the last thing that happened to him in the hospital for him to be naked? Yeah, what were the nurses doing? Yeah, you know. <laughs> you know? No! But, okay, so the reason he's in the hospital, um, we find out later, is that he was a delivery guy, and he was on his bike, and he got clipped by a driver and went into a coma. Right. So... He's been lying in a coma for who knows how long and wakes up in an abandoned hospital. At least four weeks, like, which yeah. is impressive that, like, I got the sense that the power was out in the hospital. So how was he being kept alive? I, I guess maybe that's a plot hole of, like, if, if he was just sitting yeah. there for four weeks, how does that work? Yeah, yeah. Maybe the power, the backup generator lasted for long enough to keep him alive. And then the reason he wakes up is because, because he wakes up and he's ravenous. He go there's right. an opening scene where he goes through 
the hospital and he sees an upturned snack machine and he chugs down a Pepsi and I think shoves like peanuts into his mouth. Yes. And like it's, it, it's a fun moment just, and, and isn't that your Oscar? I don't want to, I don't want to talk about it now. (laughs) (laughs) There is a lot of product placement in this movie, but notably there is a giant, um, Pepsi vending machine. Yes. So so Jim wanders out into London and like I I like this part but also like we talked about the prosumer cameras. I wonder if Danny Boyle got a little too excited about them and relied a little too much. There's the there's the desaturation of London which like on the one hand is a really cool visual style but 17 years later is also a very dated visual style. Um, (laughs) A lot of the shots, especially interior shots get very claustrophobic and it's like fisheye angled and it it becomes very uncomfortable very quickly. Um, Yeah. So like, I want to give this movie praise, but I also think there are some things that could have gone better. You know, the, the first time we see zombies, we get the amazing theme song uh, that mm-hmm. really that that intense pounding beat, but then like it goes away for most of the movie. I think it only comes back once or twice. So like, I'm I'm teeter tottering, I guess. Well, and I wonder if part of the reason it's there is to physically make you feel uncomfortable, right? Because. There's so much going on that is just so jarring, like the complete and utter silence such that whenever there's a sound, it's terrifying. Or that there's little to no movement in the first third that isn't Jim. So there's a moment when he walks into a church and there's a pile of bodies on the ground and then someone sits straight up. And I was like, no, thank you. (laughs) So I think it's the movie is just creating that sense of discomfort. If that's true, it it was brilliant. And I I think Mm. you're probably right because it totally was effective. It made me uncomfortable. So what we didn't talk about this the first time. What did you actually think of the zombies? Because technically they're like, they're not zombies, but for all intents and purposes, they are like, what, what did you think of the, the creatures in this movie? Um, they reminded me a lot of the, I am legend creatures. Mm. Um, the fact that they're, that they're not quite zombies. Actually, I think in, I am legend, it's the creatures are more similar to vampires and that they can move and they can move fast. Yes. And that's what the creatures in this movie reminded me of is they are not slow flesh eating dumb zombies. They are quick and they are violent. So I think I kind of was here for that because it subverts the trope enough for it to be something new and fascinating. I agree. And that's like, that's why I say like this helped reinvigorate the zombie genre. This was the first time we got like these runners because there was, there was this, which came out in 2002 and then the Dawn of the dead remake, um, which also has fast zombies came out in 2004. So this Mm -hmm. really helped like establish a new idea of what zombies could be. 
Um, I think this yeah. is also one of the first times it was it was a viral infection, and that leads to more fun and interesting ways that it can be transmuted. And they explore that in this movie, and they explore it even more in the sequel. Um, I like the right. rage the rage monsters. I think I think they're cool. One one thing you know, you talk about how imposing they are and how fast they are. This was just fun as a film nerd. So. <laughs> All of the shots of zombies running was shot at a different frame rate, which makes what? them look more stuttery and like just like so they're moving at a different speed, literally, um, than than everyone, than everyone else, else. And that's why they they look weirder. They look off. I love that. That's so cool. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So, um, so, so Jim is rescued by Selena and the, uh, the other guy, Mark. And that's when we start talking about, like, we start getting into morals a little bit, I feel like, and just the idea of like, London's gone. Like, like all we're doing Mm -hmm. is surviving at this point. And Jim urges the group to go find his parents I, I love that Mark at that point says, okay, we're going to go find your parents, but we'll find them dead. And it's just that harshness of that reality of like, yeah, we'll go, we'll go look for you because we're not going to let you go by yourself anywhere. But you're aware we're going to find them and we're going to find them dead. Right. And it's pragmatic to a fault. And yeah. I mean, that's exactly what happens. And this was a weird scene for me, the scene where Jim discovers his parents, you know, dead, holding each other in their bed. Because, like, so I've seen this movie twice, and both times it was just muted for me. I really didn't, mm. I, it wasn't even 100% clear to me that those were his parents until he reads the letter. And just, I I don't know, there was, there was something, like I said, going back and forth, there was something I didn't like about the way that whole beat went. Yeah. I actually really loved that um, that moment because of the letter that they write their son, um, which essentially says, we love you. We left you sleeping. We hope you never wake up. And it's this really sweet moment of they've considered their son. They've considered the reality that he might wake up. He might come to them. He might find them. They wrote him a letter regardless but in their sweet parenting way of always wanting the best for their kid, the best that they're wishing for their kid is death. And it also reminded me of, there is a recent movie, 2017 Wizard of Lies about Bernie Madoff. She ain't a killer, but she fucking blow your head up. And um, there's this really kind of funny in a weird way moment where Bernie Madoff and his wife, who's played by the brilliant Michelle Pfeiffer, collect all of the um, pills that they have in their home and they put them in this giant mixing bowl and then they give themselves like a cocktail glass of them and they say cheers and they like down the whole <laughs> goblet of pills and then the it cuts to the next shot where they're just like lying there in bed pilled out of their mind but obviously nothing is going to happen. Huh. But it's the reason it reminded me of that is when we know true terror and when we, our lives as we know them are ending, how do we face that? You know, there's the moment where you think my life 
could either continue and I could try to survive or my life is such that I don't any longer feel like it's worth continuing. Sure. And, you know, I got to say, hearing you talk about it is so much more affecting to me. Um, And maybe, I, I, I don't know, there's just something about. But I think it's, you know, it's so interesting of like, I think if I hadn't watched that movie, I wouldn't have had that layer of why is, why is this? It's this contemplation of why do we end our lives when we do? Interesting. Um, And I think it's interesting to me to contemplate if Jim had not been in a coma, would his parents have Mm -hmm. committed suicide? Sure. And that's, that's the question. Like, and, and, you know, if, as much as it happens in pop culture, I don't know how many people really think about what they would do in that situation. Um, yeah. I always figure I would fight and survive, but or at least try to fight and survive. But I'm also very invested in the creature comforts of my life. <laughs> and... <laughs> I, th- I think more than anything, it would be like, okay, find a way to arm myself and collect Kelly and Nathan and Nick and Allison, collect all our friends, and make our way up to North Carolina. <laughs> you get here, I somehow have a six-pack and, like, one of those Rambo vests of just bullets. Perfect. And, yeah, that's who I want to be in the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> I can see it, and I uh, I want to make that our next like poster. <laughs> Perfect, A plus. So back. So to, go ahead. Yeah, back to the yeah, movie. Back to Twenty Eight Days <laughs> Later. Um, we we get one of the few other jump scares of the movie where the two zombies jump through the window at Jim, but it's actually mm-hmm. Mark who bites it, and this is where Selena like you know kills him within seconds of. Like that is a fun moment where like she asks him if he's been bit and he doesn't even have to say anything. She can see it on his face and she just takes him out. Yeah. And she's, uh, Jim says later, how did you know, how did you know he was bit? And she said, I didn't, but he did. Right. And that was just so, that spoke so much to who Selena is as a person. Yeah. It's a great moment. And so, so Mark is quickly replaced by uh, Frank and Hannah, the, the lovely Brendan Gleeson along (laughs) with Megan Burns. And I, I love, I, I think this is really where like the second half of the movie starts and like, I'm here for the second half of the movie. I absolutely like it more than the first half. Um, I love everything about how they interact with each other. I Mm -hmm. love Frank who has a full on SWAT suit and has barricaded his stairwell (laughs) and like, is practiced at this point at taking zombies out. Like what 28 days later does right. It, I I think it does brilliantly. Um, it just doesn't do everything right. But I, I love Frank. I love Frank too. And it's so funny. You love Frank that he's, you know, barricaded. He's got a SWAT team. And I'm like, I love Frank because he has a ceiling full of collected (laughs) rain buckets and I love Frank because he's created Christmas for his daughter such that she can have Christmas every day. 
and he cheers them with Kryn Dementh because he's so excited to find other humans on the world. Right. Um, he's just, he's toughened because he has to be. But ultimately, you know, Frank, if this hadn't had happened, would have been the biggest softie in the whole wide world. So, oh, Frank, anyway. Jim. Totally. Absolutely. Oh, Frank. It's too pure. <laughs> Frank, so pure. Frank, so tragic. Frank, who has a radio and like is the impetus for their decision to leave the city because he has the radio transmission of the military camp calling for people to, to come for shelter and, you know, makes the decision that we, we can't stay here. We need to have a better life. And, and, you know, them escaping the city, that's actually, some of my favorite parts of the movie we've got the the tunnel break scene (laughs) which it's my least favorite part of the movie oh yeah but it's such a great moment of tension trying to fix the car with a literal horde coming after you yeah Um, and it's juxtaposed so nicely with the grocery scene (laughs) where they're just so excited to find canned peaches and at the end, Frank leaves his credit card on the turnstile because he's like, well, won't need that literally ever. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was such a good pairing of moment and payoff because you have this scene where Hannah is outside the car and she's literally going as fast as her little tiny hands can go. And then here are these encroaching zombies getting ever closer, racing towards you. And then a nice payoff of let's go grocery shopping. Perfect parallel. I think so. And it's like, it, it's such a, it's, it's such a moment of brevity. It, it winds up being one of the last moments of brevity. It's like, okay, this is, we're going to have a nice, safe, fun, no fear of danger moment. And mm-hmm. hope, hope you liked it because it's the last time in the movie you're going to feel that way. Yeah, because shortly thereafter, stuff goes down. Absolutely. So they they go to the military camp, and it's found to be abandoned. And, um, you know, Frank, obviously very upset. Uh, so this... The, the, it, it, obviously, you've either seen the movie or not. You know Frank dies here. And Frank's death just sticks out to me as as one of the worst fates in all of the genre. Like this is one of the worst deaths in all of zombie horror because like it's, it's a, it's a one in a million coincidence. You know, he, he kicks a post, which up on the top of the post is the zombies corpse hanging. If he doesn't kick it, it's blood doesn't drip down. If he's standing, two inches to his right the blood doesn't get into his eye if he waits five minutes the soldiers probably reveal themselves who are already there but instead he doesn't wait five minutes and he isn't two inches to his left and you know becomes infected through contact in his eye that's what i was talking about earlier where like i really do like what 28 days later in the universe does as all of the other different ways you can get got like yeah a drop of blood 
in an unprotected part of your body and that's all it takes and then you have the rage virus um and he's gunned down by by the salvation he was leading them towards yeah and i know i know you disagree (laughs) (laughs) well no i i agree with you that it's a tragic death but if he had stayed alive his life would be so much worse which is a very fair point (laughs) Because can you imagine being a father and leading your daughter to a place where, hey, yeah, she's going to absolutely get raped. Right. Because you're. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, because there's there's no way that just because he's the father, he's going to be able to protect her from all the soldiers. I mean, you bring you bring up a very good point that I never really even considered. Yeah. And it's just like. He he died trying to get his daughter to this thing, and how terrible would he feel if that was the thing, and he got her there, and it's his fault. Right. Like, ugh. <laughs> but that said, like, I I love this back third, this this everything everything after we meet the soldiers, like this almost becomes a different movie, but I'm really here for it. Right. Well, because it's not it's not apparent right away that it's a bad place. So there's this like quiet unfolding of not all is right here, which I really love. Absolutely. You know, we get the the brilliant Christopher Eccleston um, as the Colonel Kurtzian evil major who, you know, is is hiding the truth from his guests. But you know, just it, it, it was such a joy to see him. You know, this came out around the same mm-hmm. time that uh, the Doctor Who relaunch started. So, like, early 2000s was a good moment for Christopher Eccleston. <laughs> His agent was working really hard then. I'm going to get you stuff, Chris. I really am. <laughs> well, you know, just inconsequential to anything i think about this a lot like if you pay attention and if you see a lot of movies and tv you can tell when an actor nails an audition or when their agent like really works overtime because all of a sudden Mm -hmm. one actor will be in like three or four different things within the span of two months and it's like oh okay good good for you you really nailed it that time uh whatever his audition was christopher eccleston nailed it in this one (laughs) I, I just I dig the whole vibe of the group of soldiers who barricade themselves up in a mansion, like ignoring the mm. fact that very quickly they become the true villains of the movie. I would have yeah. absolutely eaten up the movie about these guys and the four weeks they spend and how they go from you know, ho-hum regular soldiers to surviving a zombie apocalypse to finding this place. Like, I, I I, would have been very interested just to see their journey. But it's yeah. funny because it probably would have been impossible to keep them as good guys seeing the journey. Like, like they're evil through and through is, is my point. Yeah. And so it it unfolds after probably a day and a half where after a few cues that not all is right with the world, that, oh, indeed, not all is right with the world. Um, Christopher Eccleston's colonel shows Jim around into the backyard and he says, 
oh, we're keeping this zombie here in shackles to see what a zombie does if they're left alone. And that zombie is, other than Selena, the only person of color we've seen heretofore. And it's a black man and he's in shackles. So it's kind of building that tension of, okay, that's a little, maybe, maybe they just didn't think about that casting. And then one or two misplaced comments towards the women of, I really hope you know how to cook. And some comments made about a boy wearing an apron that he's the little missus. And you're like, okay, well, that's a little weird. And then the bomb drops. Oh, we brought women here so that we could continue the race and have hope because where there is women, there's hope. And you're like, Oh no! There it is. There. Okay. All right. <laughs> right. Which, which in and of itself, that statement is like kind of, kind of nice and kind of philosophical. Yeah. But, but what stands behind what it? What stands behind <laughs> it, and the the implication and the the machinations. Yeah, like there. Uh, Eccleston's character gives that monologue where he's talking with Jim and by the end of it like he's gone from savior to ultimate bad guy explaining like hey listen I don't know what's gonna happen I thought we could save people we can't like I'm just I'm just trying to keep my men safe it's it's lawful evil not even not even keep my men safe keep my men happy and lastly meet Mela it absolutely becomes lawful evil. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there's a whole reading of this movie where you con where you could just focus on that line and reevaluate the whole movie from a feminist lens of like where there's women there's hope and you kind of can reevaluate like how Selena moves the mo- movie forward, how she helps Hannah, how Selena when she kind of comes to see past her just survive just survive just survive mentality things kind of change to where she's seeing, oh, families and moving forward together are a good thing. There's a whole reading of this movie that you can do based on that line. But then what's behind that line is Christopher Eccleston's character using women as tools to just keep men happy. Right. And, ah! <laughs> you know, as soon as I saw it, I thought to myself, I'm, I'm, I can't wait to hear what Stephanie thinks <laughs> of this uh, this rapist plot twist. <laughs> oh boy! Well, I was just gonna say it's it's like we go back to talking about morality and the gray morality of this movie mm. and the morality within the soldier group themselves because you know you've got the ones that are clearly more unhinged and more ready to just right. do whatever they want, and then you've got poor Sergeant Farrell who is. The chaplain and is like trying his absolute best to just keep everyone good and proper and and to 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 keep themselves as humans and not just these you know beasts with guns who do whatever they want he's the guy um later when they're both in jail sergeant farrell and jim he's the one who has thought this thing through enough to figure out that mm-hmm. this is this this zombie apocalypse is only happening in England like right in 3 weeks 
the world is going to start turning again and like we're gonna have to live with what we've done here so let's make sure we can and just nobody is there for it nobody's listening or interested and that's such a tragedy but like i love it (laughs) yeah because it starts this conversation of who do you become at the end of the world like what do you do and he's just sitting there trying to be a moral human and say we have to we're going to have to answer for this. And who do who do we answer to? Totally. And, you know, he gets shot by his friend for his troubles. <sighs> yep. But yep. that leads into the climax. And I, I, you know, so so Jim narrowly avoids getting shot himself and is on the wrong side of the wall. And I am here for survivor animal Jim. Like... Like this, the, the yes. last half of the, the last like 20 minutes of the movie, it's so badass to me and I love it. <laughs> and he's naked again, is he not? Or is he wearing just he's pants? He's wearing just pants for, for reasons okay. he loses his shirt. I don't quite remember why, but you know, he, mm, he, female gaze. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but he's you gotta give him something. He's shirtless and he's bloody. He, you know, he looks like he's one of the zombies now and just you know with nothing left to lose and realizing that there is no salvation to be had here he just brings such ruination upon the soldiers and you know the best laid plans of major west get destroyed by one guy who knows how to work a siren and knows how to trick all these dudes and it's it's such a great catharsis after the heel turn of all the soldiers and you realize they're you know they're all base and and despicable in their own ways for them to get totally annihilated by zombies in their home um is, mm-hmm. is greatly enjoyable to me and then you have the turn of also mailer the zombie they've chained up he gets loose and it's it's that even bigger turn of you've completely made this this monster into your pet, and now you're going to get attacked by him. Right. And it turns even more that irony of just, well, this is what you get. Absolutely, and it you know they they go down in like five minutes. All the all the guns and all the uh, training in the world it it doesn't help if you have your back door opened and get attacked from a side you weren't expecting. Um, I love the climactic like action ending. I love how the rain looks like I was instantly struck by that. That's another really cool thing they were able to do with the cameras. And by changing frame rates, the rain looks all stuttered and and it's like strobe lighting. And yeah, ah, I'm I'm just here for it. That was really cool. (laughs) And during that same moment, we also have the building tension of Selena and Hannah trying to get away from all these men. Right. Because so there's the zombies, but there's also the men. So it's this building tension of there's so much happening on both sides. And Selena and Hannah, who throughout the movie have consistently kind of been the moral backbone arc. So Hannah, who has been grieving the loss of her father, is hopped up on Valium because... Selena is a nurse and she said, well, I'm going to make it so that you don't feel anything because she's thinking, oh, this little girl is going to get raped and I'm going to give her something that's going to make her not not care about it. And so through that, this whole movie, their tension is building too. of they're trying to get away 
And there is this, a moment where Hannah, in an attempt to stay away from a zombie, is clinging to the back of a mirror and her little arms are shaking. And she's just like, this is the only thing I can think to do. And it's so brilliant that as this, at the same time that the zombies are attacking, the men are attacking. So it becomes that whole conversation about who are truly the monsters here. Totally. We, we have our heroes. And if you're not one of these three people in one way or another, you're a villain. Exactly. Exactly. It's a really fascinating conversation about what is humanity, really. Totally. Uh, Hannah was interesting to me. Um, the actress has only done two other movies besides 28 Days Later. I've come around on her a bit. When we, we talked on the episode that uh, got corrupted, I really... And zombies. And zombies. <laughs> and zombies. <laughs> um, I really had a problem with Hannah, the actress, not the character. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe, you know, I've had more time to reflect and come around on it now. You know, it's it's, <laughs> it's hard when your direction is you're on Valium. So I'm willing to cut her some slack. I, I think everything the character does in what you're talking about is absolutely right. Um, and I guess I've come yeah. around on the performance of the actress herself as well. Like it, it, yeah. it, she does a good job. Well, she's she's on Valium and she's also grieving the very traumatizing loss of seeing her dad gunned to death in front of her, which is just like how. Ha- how do you act that? Sure. And I think the answer is you act quiet. You don't say a whole lot. Um, I think her portrayal is very on point. I think there there is a lot said in the moment when Selena gives her the drugs and Hannifer says, "Are you gonna? Are you giving this to me to kill me?" And it's not frantic. It's not dramatic in any way. She says it kind of flatlined, like. I would be fine with dying. And I think that mo- that moment speaks volumes. Sure. Sure, no, you've stated the case, and, and I've really come around on that. Ha-ha, win! <laughs> now to just get you to move to Asheville, North Carolina. Ha-ha-ha! <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, my file can't be corrupted if we're uh, on the same audio track because we're in the same room together. <laughs> I mean... Hello. The reasons are multitude. Um, so to lead us into the finale of the movie, you know, Jim brings ruination and and becomes the, the, the monster to save everybody. You know, there's the great moment where Selena almost kills him because at a glance mm-hmm. she thinks he's infected. And that, like, like, that is kind of the culmination of her arc that she hesitates and takes that extra second giving him the time to make it clear that he is not a a, a rage monster Um, Mm -hmm. you know they make their way to the car and jim gets shot by major west Mm -hmm. and that leads us you know into what is actually one of the most hopeful zombie movie endings i think i've ever seen where he survives the gunshot wound and you know we get the last minute of the movie where they're writing a a note to um to passing jets Mm -hmm. and what did you think of the ending so there is that ending and then there was another ending like an alternate release but i don't know if you want to talk about it in that order i i guess the ending as it was felt a little too castaway and he gets 
rescued by a passing boat to me. <laughs> I like the analogy there. <laughs> I liked the ending more where he died and Selena and Hannah just pick up and move on with their life anyway. And Hannah says, what do we do? And Selena says, we keep going. Because that, to me, makes more sense with the rest of the movie and with the argument of the film of just women are women are the hope and we're going to keep going together. Um, the end as it is felt a little too hopeful to me. Like, oh, yeah, we're going to get through this. We're going to get better and we're going to get rescued. I liked more wondering about what was going to happen. Sure. And I, I don't think you're wrong. It is a bit of a very bright and colorful bow to tie everything together. We're gonna be okay. It's all fucked. I've got to turn this face. Yeah. So the ending you prefer is actually the original ending. Ha! <laughs> um, and they, they showed it to test audiences and it was actually too depressing for people at the time. Um, oh, whatever. Right. <laughs> So they they reshot and and they had Jim survive and that's what gave the more the more hopeful ending. But mm-hmm. I, I think you're right. Like like the thesis of the movie kind of winds up being that line with women you have hope. And so as long as Selena and Hannah are still there, that through line works. We don't need Jim at that yeah. point. Yeah. But I also get that it's weird to kill your kill your main protagonist at the end of the movie and then have it continue without him. I get that some people wouldn't prefer that in their narrative arcs. And there is something to that. I I understand that, but at the same time it's like but it's so bright and happy that it doesn't make sense to me. I gotcha. And like this movie doesn't do anything to have me say it didn't age well but it's interesting like this was before game of thrones this was before walking dead you can kill the protagonist nowadays Mm. in ways that you really couldn't back then and i I think that's what we're seeing here that's probably a really good point yeah like what do you do when the protagonist is dead that's when the story ends right so but no, you know, all in all, it's I, I think it's still a great movie. It's still a very enjoyable movie. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we talked about it a little bit, but I, I think we disagree on whether or not this is cult. Yeah. So give me your argument for that. It's cult. Well, like the thing of it is, is like it, it spawned a sequel, which if it spawned a franchise, I, that would be a knock against it. But but a, a single sequel, I, I, I would allow um, and I, honestly, mm-hmm. I think 28 Weeks Later is the better of the two films. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it it also had a comic book miniseries. And like I said, it, it restarted the zombie genre. A lot of my argument is totally hinged on the point I made to start this about how like, like zombie movies are almost cult by default. Maybe I need to relook at that assumption. But, you know, that was that was really kind of the key thing for me i don't know if Mm. just as a movie it's aged as well as some of the classics from the 70s and 80s but it deserves credit for being something that saved 
the subgenre. Yeah. Yeah, and I will say that that this, you know, this is what restarted it. This after this you have Walking Dead, which just like exploded the zombie zeitgeist because then after that we had Zombieland. And when you have a movie with Andy uh not Andy Samberg, um Jesse Eisenberg, who I would rather Andy Samberg (laughs) every day. When you have a movie with Jesse Eisenberg, it's like, oh, it's officially not a genre thing. It's like common to the zeitgeist as a full thing. Sure, 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 sure. So agree to disagree on the cult status. Um, (laughs) You know, listener, if you feel strongly about it, let us know. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think? We want to hear from you. Tweet at us at Cult Fiction Cast. Exactly. Um, but whether it's cult or not, um, 28 Days Later did not receive any Oscars, and that's a shame. So, mm. without any further ado. Um, I would like to give 28 Days Later the Oscar for Most Awkward Toast. <laughs> and... What I what I had in mind when I wrote this was the scene you had talked about earlier with Frank. Frank in his apartment with a pair of utter strangers he has just saved decides, oh, what a momentous occasion. We need to have a toast. Oh, <laughs> the only alcohol I have is creme de menthe. Welp. No. Let's toast to creme de menthe while Frosty the Snowman's playing in the background. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's so great. So I took that down and then I realized, oh, there's a second awkward toast because there's the the scene at the dinner where they toast with an uh, 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 omelet made of rotten eggs. <laughs> so. <gasps> Gross. Bevy, bevy with awkward toasts. There you go. Well, speaking of things you can toast with, I would like to give my Oscar for best product placement to Pepsi. Huh. Because as I said earlier, there is a turned over vending vending machine with Pepsi and it's like, Pepsi! And I'm like, oh, hello, Pepsi. How much did you pay for that shot? (laughs) (laughs) Pepsi, when you're starving in the apocalypse. Pepsi, thanks, mother-in-law, for putting my husband through college (laughs) with Pepsi money. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) My husband was raised on Pepsi money. (laughs) (laughs) so yay a a pair of oscars for it to walk away with um you wanted to do uh, a new thing for this i i did want to do a new thing and if you've been following along on our show notes we've started i've started retroactively doing this um where i've started putting in reading recommendations to go with the movie um so our most recently aired episode just to share with our listeners how far along we are ahead of time was showgirls. And so I made a couple of recommendations having to do around nonfiction around stripping. And um, so this time I'm actually going to share a fiction book called station 11. It's by Emily St. John Mandel. And it's a novel which takes place in the great lakes region after a fictional swine flu pandemic. The swine flu is known as the Georgia flu, and it has devastated the world, killing most of the population. The novel follows a group of survivors who strive to discover what society may have left for them. And the reason it reminds me of this movie is it 
deals a lot with the same issues of at the end of the world, who are you and who do you want to be? So there's that same contemplation of black and white versus gray morality and what's good and what's bad. But it also has this beautiful contemplation of what literature do we carry forward with us? What art do we carry forward? Um, It's a really, really good read. I read it in probably a week at most. So it's fairly quick and I highly recommend. Fantastic. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So. And I saw at the top of our notes, you also wanted to add Doc of the Dead. Uh, yeah, so so that's not a um, a reading recommendation, but no. So so Doc of the Dead is actually a documentary. It used to be on Netflix, um, and and that's where I got a lot of really fun, you know, kind of anecdotes about the zombie movie genre and you know the 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 popular culture <sighs> zeitgeist. Um, so if you can find it on any streaming, it, it doesn't appear to be anywhere right now, but it's, it, it's a really fun documentary. Ah, cool. Yeah. Well, you know what else is really fun? <laughs> I do. Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> so would you like to go first? I certainly can. Uh, I used the brilliant Brendan Gleeson as Frank, who was in Gangs of New York with John C. Riley, who was in The River Wild with Kevin Bacon. Excellent. You know, yeah. John C. Riley is so fun to me because, like, he's an actor that for the longest time I just knew him as a funny guy and, like, he was you know, Will Ferrell's clown partner in crime. And then to see him in stuff like gangs of New York or Chicago and to realize, Oh no, you're, you're like a capital A actor. Um, yeah. That always makes me laugh. <laughs> so my six degrees does not have John C. Riley, but it does have oh, Brendan Gleeson. Uh, I love the man dearly yeah. and would like to use him as much as possible. Brendan Gleeson was also in Assassin's Creed with Michael Fassbender, who was in X-Men First Class with Kevin Bacon. (gasps) That's awesome. Yay! We both got it in two. That's a tie. I'll take it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. I have an in-house walking encyclopedia. It's not my fault. Okay. What movie do we get to watch next Let's time? find out. So, yeah, every episode on Cult Fiction, we <laughs> we try to let fate decide. And the we like to think the Hollywood crypt has a mind of its own. It certainly has worked in mysterious ways in the past. We have a grand total of still 317 possible movies. And yes. we are going to be watching number 179... So also from the early 2000s, also maybe debatably a cult movie. Um, next time on Cult Fiction, we'll be watching 2000s American Psycho. <gasps> yes. I've been wanting to watch this movie for a really long oh, time. Oh, have you not seen it? I have never seen oh, it. Oh, excellent. Because it, when it came out, I was a wee babe. Sure, sure. So. <laughs> I think... 
So that was not happening. I think this restarted, like, this was like the start of, like, adult Christian Bale, I think. Oh. Well, yeah, I'll watch pretty much anything with Christian Bale in it, so I'm very excited. Although this movie, I, I've heard this movie is rumored to make it not exciting to watch Christian Bale. This movie has some moments, for sure. Well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time when we lay down a bunch of plastic sheets and listen to Huey Lewis in the news. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell. Oh,